This is It Just Takes One. One person, one experience, one idea, one moment to change your life. Here's what's coming up on today's show. It was Monday morning at 8 a.m. That phone rang and the screen on the phone said UCLA. And I think I, I, my heart stopped and I couldn't breathe. I am fascinated by resilience. I often think about what it takes for somebody to overcome a challenge in life, to be resilient. And I've asked myself the question, and maybe you have too, is there a formula for resilience? Is there a prescription that allows you to overcome whatever obstacles are placed in your path? Well, I can't begin to say that I have the exact answer to that, (laughs) but I do believe there are markers of success. There may not be a magic formula. There may not be an absolute prescription, but I do think there are things that we can do that are within our control that make us more resilient, that allow us to overcome the challenges of our life just a little bit better. And my guest today is the perfect example of that. Today, I am interviewing Chrissy Lomax. You will soon discover that she is a brilliant, bright energy, uh, full of life and, and full of love and laughter. Chrissy has experienced some significant obstacles in her life. Not just once, but twice, she has faced life-threatening situations. And both times, she has lived to tell about it. She has recently written a book called Another Interruption. And today we're gonna talk about that book and we're gonna talk about the tools that she has employed, that she has practiced in her life that have allowed her to overcome these obstacles and to be more resilient. So I invite you to settle back and listen in as Chrissy Lomax shares her story. Good morning, Chrissy. Welcome to It Just Takes One. I am so happy to have you on the show today. I've actually been really looking forward to our interview. How are you today? Really good. Thank you. Good. The reason I'm looking forward to my interview is I have had so much fun working with you over this past few months, getting your book written, edited, and now very ready to be put out into the world, ready for launch. Uh, and it's just been a lot of fun getting to know you. And I'm looking forward to to letting the listeners get to know you as well as we as we talk today. So welcome. I appreciate that very much, Kelly. I, it's it, the feeling is is mutual. I have loved this whole experience. And whenever I've been very anxious and overwhelmed, you've always pulled me back down to earth <laughs> and reminded me that we will get through this. <laughs> Anxious and overwhelmed about writing and publishing a book. I can hardly understand that, Christy. <laughs> oh, gee. I am. I totally understand it, and and am 
going to talk a little bit about that today. Let's talk about the book. Let's just jump right in and talk about it. The book is called Another Interruption. And I would love to just start by sharing with the listeners why you decided to write this book and why you decided to call it Another Interruption. Loaded question, right? <laughs> Starting um, off yeah. with the big ones, right from the get-go. Yes. <laughs> Another interruption. You know, I feel like we're all interrupted constantly in our day, in our week, in our lives. Look at how we're interrupted right now. This is a major interruption for the whole world, what we're going through right now. And it's, it's never ending, the interruptions. And I think the interruptions are important because we do learn from them, <laughs> right? We learn a lot of things from every interruption. It's kind of like, whoop, hold up, time to, you know, time for a quiz, right? So, so um, I, I called this another interruption because I did have an interruption that was major and life-changing back in the 80s when I was in a very serious car accident in the backseat of a car just a couple days before Christmas, a few days before Christmas, and um, that car got crushed and they used the jaws of life to get me out. And I spent four years to fully recover from that, that accident and that trauma. And there were a lot of serious injuries there. And so, so it, was, it was quite a job. So I thought my job was done. I thought, that's it. Okay, paid my dues. All right. <laughs> I really did. I thought, this is it. I've had that. Done. Nothing else catastrophic could happen to me again. I felt safe in every car. And it would be kind of a joke. I'd get in a car with somebody. Oh, no, you won't get in an accident. Don't worry. I've been in a bad accident. So it's not going to happen again. Probability and statistics say. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a car accident. That was my next interruption. Um, it was. It was breast cancer totally out out of um out of my worry with breast cancer wasn't even worried about breast cancer yeah so another interruption and when i was diagnosed in july of 2017 with her two new positive breast cancer which about 20 percent of the breast cancer is diagnosed in and around 20 to 25 percent of the breast cancers diagnosed are this aggressive form uh, protein driven and the other group are mostly um, hormone driven. Um, and then there are triple negative breast cancers. There are so many different breast cancers. Mine though, which I know about and which I beat is her two new positive breast cancer. And so there I was now with another major interruption in my life. And um, I took it on as a job, <laughs> like I do every other challenge and, and every, Everything I want, I have to plan it out. How am I going to get there? You know, and I, I, I'm very methodical about it. And I, I look at the steps that I need to take. And one of the very important steps I started immediately when this, the whole journey began with being diagnosed was writing newsletters to my family, to my very close friends, and to my clients to keep them all abreast of what was happening and um, how I was feeling. And in these newsletters I wrote... I was, it was very easy for me to be honest and open and talk about this and that what everything that was going on, exactly what I was feeling because the more I did it, the, the stronger and the more motivated and the more confident I felt that I was gonna beat this. So it was at that time when I was getting responses from all these newsletters I was sending that, thank you, Chrissy, for sharing what's going on with you. It's going to help me deal with 
my friend or my sister or my cousin who is going through the same thing right now. Or thank you for explaining that. I had no idea that is what a breast cancer patient goes through. Wow, is that what happens in radiation? So I was getting all of these responses back from my newsletters. And as a result, I started thinking, you know what? This is a book here. I can write this out and help people. Let others see what it's like. You know, let others see what it's like and, and, and tell them a story at the same time of all of the life experiences I've lived, how I pulled it all together, put it in one little backpack and said, okay, let's go beat this monster. <laughs> so that's kind of what I did. <laughs> and that's exactly what you did. And I'm guessing that of the listeners out there, every single listener has in some way been impacted by cancer. And I would guess most of them have had someone within their community or group that has had breast cancer. And so I am, I am so glad to be able to share all of these things with, with the listeners today as your book will once it comes out into the world. Thank you, Kelly. And you know, um, the year I was diagnosed in 2017, it's not just women. You know, over 2,000 men were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's men as well, you know, yeah, not as common. You know, so now good to make that point, yeah. though, because you do we do tend to think it's a, a women's disease, right? We, yeah. we and we tend to just sort of forget that there this is a human illness. And yes, maybe yes. it impacts women more than men, but let's not forget yes. that they're in this pool too. Men have hormones too, you know, and um, it's it's just really remarkable, and and it's never it's, it isn't talked about often. Yeah, but um, I did find out that statistic. It was it was over two thousand men in two thousand seventeen. I was surprised. Yeah, that's a that's important to know. So thanks for pointing that out. So let's go back to the beginning of your journey and share some of that journey so that people listening might have, you know, be able to relate a little bit to your story, maybe learn something about this process that they didn't know before and, and maybe be inspired if they are somebody who is battling with this right now. Let's share some of that journey with them. Going back to when you were originally diagnosed, uh, talk about the process. Uh, you went for your annual man mammogram or your, your regular mammogram. And that was sort of the beginning of what became this, this fight <laughs> against the monster. <laughs> Go ahead and take us back there and, and kind of talk about that moment and, and what happened from that point. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, I, I have always done self breast exams and um, a regular routine, you know, we all have our routine either in the shower or when you wake up in the morning or whatever, like checking. And so I've always done that, you know, and, and sometimes it'll, I'll go by for months and not check, or then all of a sudden, oh, I better, you know, you hear if somebody was diagnosed and then all of a sudden you become really alert, <laughs> right? About everything going on. Mm -hmm. Well, this, the day I was going for my regular women's wellness, um, you know, mammogram, um, I, I went, I stood in the mirror of the bathroom and I kind of just thought, well, let me look at my breasts now, really have a good look at them. How often do we stand in front of the mirror naked? Well, I don't know. I don't very often. <laughs> <laughs> Especially then, you know, because I was, I was at a point in my life. I was uh, 57. Okay. I was 57. I had been dealing with major hot flashes. Mm -hmm. I was, um, 
dealing with extra unwanted weight gain. I was into a, a year since retiring from being a marathon coach. And although still a Pilates instructor and a fitness trainer and, and a fitness professional and a weight loss coach, you know, I could get other people to lose 10 pounds, you know, um, I, I really had a problem with my abuse of food, kind of like if it was abusing drugs. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see much difference. It's just food is legal, affordable, available, and morally acceptable, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, I abused the food too much, you know, and, and I talk about that in the, in the book a lot, because when you do have a weight thing in your head, it kind of stays with you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I raised my arms above my head to look in the mirror on my right breast, I saw an indentation happen. Now, what the heck is that? You know, and I've never seen that before. And, and I did it again. I thought <laughs> I'm trying to blow it off. And that, oh, nobody told me that you get dents in your boobs when you get old, you know? <laughs> nobody told me that one. Are you kidding me? So I tried again and, and it was still there. And I kind of moved in different directions. And, and that dent still kept showing up in the same spot. And I thought, ah. I, I can't worry about it. You know, I had company coming for the weekend. So like that was more important. Get ready for them. Go for this mammogram. I got myself to the mammogram. Yeah. Got that mammogram done. It was in the back of my head the whole time. And that was on a Friday, a Friday morning. So my cousins arrived and we partied all weekend. And it was Monday morning at 8 a.m. That phone rang and the screen on the phone said UCLA. And I think I, I, my heart stopped. And I couldn't breathe. Yeah. I want to pause you right there because I'd like to read this part in the book where oh, that happened so that people you. can hear it in your words from the book. Thank you. It said, and then that Monday morning at 8 a.m. on my sister's birthday at the end of June 2017, the phone rang. The phone screen read UCLA. I think I stared at the phone for three rings, knowing that the answering system picks up in four. I wasn't sure I wanted to answer this call. I had a bad feeling and I was afraid. I thought about letting UCLA leave a message so I could freak out first and then call them back. In a brave breath, I grabbed the receiver at the last second. Numb, stunned, and paralyzed are words that come to mind to describe how I felt after I hung up the phone. <laughs> yes. Then I thought about the dent in my boob. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe that was something, but no, there's no breast cancer in my family. You know? Yeah, I didn't even think of that. It That's a my... big, big point right there. I want to emphasize yeah. that because you did not have a genetic background leading you to breast cancer. And a lot of times I think we as women think that it has to be genetic to happen to us. And, and I think it, we need to make the point that it isn't always a genetic issue. Exactly. You know, and I think it's something like eight out of 10 uh, breast cancer diagnoses are not uh, family history. Mm. You know, they're not DNA. And um, I had the tests and it's, it's not. And nobody in my family has had breast cancer. Lots of cancer and mm -hmm. lots of loss to cancer. Um, but not breast cancer. So I'm first. Yes. Which is why it stays with you. Why? How? When? 
what did I do? <laughs> you know, all those exactly things. Exactly what I was going to say, because of course you begin then questioning, wait, well, then how? How did that happen? What did I do wrong? What did, you know, what, what caused yeah. this? Yeah, exactly. You know, and my mom, she died of colon cancer at the age of 41. And at that point, it fired me up to be involved with research for, for cancer, you know, cancer research, raising money for cancer research. And um, I, I thought colon cancer was the biggest fear for me, you know, that is an inherent cancer and the biggest fear for me. And oh my goodness, I better just keep eating well. And, and you know, weight gain wasn't, happen, was, wasn't helping at all. That's for sure. Um, so breast cancer was just totally not on the radar. You actually just brought up a point that um, is worth talking about as well, because you said you had done a lot of work with helping foundations that have do cancer research. And you had actually done a lot of fundraising and um, some of the marathons that you were running for were all like team and training and things like that. Um, right. Because you, you had this connection with cancer from your mom passing away so young. Exactly. Exactly. So it was always a big motivation for me. I mean, the first I've, I've actually done up in and around over 25 marathons. I don't recommend that for anybody. <laughs> I've had two knee surgeries and two foot surgeries. Don't do it. You know, um, I don't recommend it. But um, it was during my, I, I, my first marathon. I did my first marathon when I was 40. Up until then, I thought people that did them really were nuts, you know. <laughs> and um, I was I was 40 and I was a Weight Watcher leader and I was leading a meeting and one of the members stood up and she was very proud and she had just lost weight and 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 she was turning 40 and she just had knee surgery and she stood up and said, I am going to celebrate turning 40 and getting knee surgery and I'm going to do the San Francisco Chronicle Marathon. And I something came over me. I had a brain warp and I just said. I'll do it with you. I'll make sure you get to the finish line. I didn't know what the heck I was talking about, to be honest with you. And, and yeah, so there I was and I <laughs> created a program and I was on the floor of the bookstores in the marathon section, just devouring every bit of information I could find about how to get to a finish line, healthy, happy, and injury free. You know, that's all I wanted to do and how to teach somebody do that. So, so I did. You know, and it was during that marathon, and that was in 2000, during that marathon, that, um, you know, if you're ever doing an endurance race, you can relate. There's usually somebody in front of you that you kind of like act, they're, they're kind of like your carrot, you know, and you're, oh, well, well I got to keep up with them. And if you're kind of dragged, well, where's that person? I was kind of following their back, and then I know <laughs> I'm okay with my pace. So this was my first marathon. I, you know, I, I, it, it was, it was pretty tough. My left knee would not straighten out. I had no extension in my left knee for the last 10 miles of this event. I dragged a bent left knee for 10 miles. And this person in front of me that got me through that last 10 miles had a team and training shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, mom, is this a message? You know, cause since mom left, I'm always asking her for messages. And I'm like, mom, is this a message? Am I supposed to do this team and training? So I followed this person for 10 miles, you know, all the way to the finish line. I made it. And as soon as I got home from San Francisco, I got on the phone and I called team and training and I said, I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I started um, training for team and training with, with their teams 
And then I, I started running my own team and training teams out in this area of Ventura County in California. And uh, yeah, that's how my marathon started. <laughs> you actually talk about this in the book and it, and it goes to, you know, who would have ever guessed that somehow this, this training for marathons would translate into how you are going to get through the journey through breast cancer. I mean, that was certainly never on your radar when you decided to start doing them. But you do talk about how it, it really dovetailed beautifully for you. What you had learned in the training for marathons was a lot of what you used. And I'll, and I'll share a, a quick part of that here in the book. You said, um, thank you. Have a plan and follow it. Make a check, make a list and check it off as you go. It's as easy as that. Don't get too far ahead of yourself because it will just overwhelm you. First, learn how to complete two miles healthy and happy, then move forward from there. Be patient and treat yourself like an athlete. Know that you will have good day, training days and not so good ones. Respect the recovery stage. Listen to what your body is telling you and let your body heal before you push it again. As I write this down, it looks like the rules of life. <laughs> yes, it did. When I remember writing that, I remember writing that that day. And, and that's what I thought. I thought, this looks like the rules of life to me. Pace yourself, listen to your body, you know, nourish your body where you need to. Yep. And that is exactly what you did after you got that call from UCLA that said, we need to do some biopsies. And after the biopsies were confirmed and you knew that this was breast cancer that you were going to be battling, you started by creating a plan. You yes. worked hard on taking care of what you could take care of, not being overwhelmed. You listened to your body, you rested. You share in the book, a, a very candid view of what it was like to go through the 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 the, key, the chemo and the all of the um, journey that you had to go through to get better. What stands out to you? What what do you remember most about that time? Really going into the fight mode against the monster. Oh, I could almost cry. <laughs> mm. As you were, I have, as I say in the book, I, you know, if any of you ever saw the movie with Don Knotts, the incredible Mr. Limpet, how he mm. would, <laughs> Mr. Limpet, 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 Limpet anyway, I think, he, would, yeah. he would daydream and be, it would be real, right? That's how my head goes sometimes. Mm. Um, and so hearing you describe that to go through um, uh, uh, it, it's the tunnel. I, the first, the first feeling from my first, after my first chemo infusion after, at about day five or six, I started to feel my body going into a dark place where I felt like I had a flu or I was spacey, real space cadet, crabby, mm -hmm. <laughs> irritable. I don't know. I, I couldn't keep my head up. I felt, started to feel like a bag of bones. And I called it going into the tunnel, um, going and, and all the, the one thing you said, what is something that sticks with you? And it was, I let the drugs and all the chemo do their job to fight this, this cancer, get do your job. The, the sicker I felt, I figured the better it was working. 
Hey, I had these games I played. Oh, geez, it must be to that that drug must that Herceptin must be doing good today, and um, so that's that's kind of how I felt. But I'll tell you, a big monster to fight while I was in the darkness of the tunnel was that thing called doubt. Hmm. And there is that thing called doubt because you start to wonder if you've are they fooling me? You know. Like you wonder, what is, is real? Am I, because you start to get confused on where you're at. And that thing chemo brain is real. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> it does get in the way a little bit. Um, so you start to think a lot and you don't feel good enough to sleep. You don't feel good enough to do anything. So you kind of just lay there and like think, and it's, it, that, that can be too much to take. So that's when I would pick up a pen and paper and start writing. And as soon as I started to write, it would go away Mm. and I would be able to get it all out. All those fears, you know, um, because I would think about it, that when you when you find out that, okay, well, it looks like we got all the cancer. Well, did they? You know, (laughs) we told my mom they did and we knew they didn't. But, you know, we didn't want to tell her otherwise. Um, So those that's the part that I think about and why I think I got emotional when you were talking about that in introducing it is because I was thinking about doubt mm-hmm. yeah well mindset is so important to everything I mean it was important when you were running a marathon to get your mind right yes it was important when you set out on this battle against cancer and I I was kind of chuckling when you said you know when I when I was the sickest my first thought was good it's doing its job you have a particular mindset that is not what everybody has. You know, most people are thinking when I'm getting sicker, that means I'm getting sicker. You, however, saw the positive in it right away. You have had the ability to flip your mindset to the positive. And it didn't just start when you started on this battle with cancer. Tell me about that mindset. What do you think it is that helped you develop that kind of mindset where you could really find the good in the situation or look for the, the, the outcome that you want as opposed to just letting it drag you down and, and becoming a victim to it? Where did you get that mindset? How did that develop for you in your life? Holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really not sure. I know I was, uh, I don't know. I really don't know. Were you I, always I that way? To, yes. I think I always have been that way. I've just always wanted to do everything. I'm very interested in many things. And, um, I've, I've always wanted to do that. And I was thinking about the book writing. I said, I was going to write a book in 2007 you know, and I, I actually did write many different things. And, and when I left Weight Watchers in 2007, and I was like, bye, I'm focusing on my marathon team and, and personal training, and I'm going to write a book. And they said, good luck, we can't wait to read, you, wait to read your book. Well, I, I didn't know that it would take so many years later, and I didn't know it would be about this, a cancer journey, you know. Um, I just think I've always been that way, Kelly. I've Oh, gee, that looks good. I want to do it. It's hard to watch, you know, it's, Going into Michael's, you know, the creative store, the arts, and that's like, I got to put blinders on because I want to make everything and do everything in there. So I'm going in daughter. there for one thing, I focus or I'll forget it, you know? I love that. It's my daughter's favorite store. 
It's great, <laughs> but you have to really be focused with a list and that's it, you know, or else forget it. You're making everything and you're opening up a craft store. So <laughs> just to, you know, I'm going to take it and keep going on that. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I'm, I want to share this piece of you as well, because one of the things we're talking about mindset, and I'm curious if music plays a role in that for you at all. And the reason being, you know, as you talk about wanting to do all these things, one of the things that you are extraordinary at is, is that you're a musician. You actually have been a musician longer than you've been a trainer or, (laughs) or, you know, someone who's, who's survived breast cancer. So what's the role of music in your life? And how do you think that your music played a role in your, in developing that more positive outlook and positive mindset? I started writing songs very young, um, just with a guitar that was around the house. And, and honestly, all the, all the chords I played, it was years later, I found out they had names and I didn't make them up. I, <laughs> I thought I, I made all these, wow, I'm really good here. Yeah, I found out they were actually really chords. Um, yeah, so I started writing songs really young and, and um, you know, I mean, even really young, getting up on the top of the picnic tables at family picnics and, and performing or, or reciting poetry or something. Um, and uh, so it's always been an outlet for me. And um, I, you know, I, I know we all have our stories with our childhoods and um, that's a whole other book for me. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with what I went through in my childhood, um, and my parents divorcing and being with a very young mother and um, my sister, writing songs and shutting myself in the bedroom with the guitar sitting on the bed and writing it all out, the good, the bad and the ugly with music behind it was, was healing. And it was the way I could keep moving forward and actually there, done. Something would hang into my head and bother me, bother me, bother me until I would sit down with the guitar, write it out no matter how it sounded, write it, record it on the little cassette player, whatever it was. And then it would be cleared from me. I wouldn't be carrying it around anymore. It wasn't weighed on my shoulders. So I learned really young how to get rid of, of that, that stuff that weighs you down. And as for um, mindset, I don't know. I just had to keep doing it. I just had to do what I needed to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for everything. I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a complicated question. It is a complicated question. And, and, and but it, it's an intriguing one because I do think, you know, some people are, have a natural propensity to it, which is, you know, very likely you just have a natural propensity to, you're like the cork that kind of pops back to the surface. You can push it down for a little bit, but it's always going to find its way up. It's just natural for you to be that way. Um, but I do think you have found some tools and techniques uh, that, that you've used, including, singing and writing songs but the writing component as you said you know the what a skill to be able to take all of the gunk that we might have in our head and and get it onto paper as i work with writers i often say to them once you get it down then you can do something with it when it's in your head and the stuff is just swirling and it goes nowhere it just gets stuck in there the minute it's on the page it becomes something you can hold it becomes something you can read or 
process or rip up or burn, <laughs> or you can do something with it. Yes, and that yes. is a, a really effective tool for getting rid of whatever is holding you down and allow yeah. you to come back up. You learned that early. Yeah. And I think everybody can do that because we can all write, you know, and um, I'll get it out somehow. Even if you just have a, a mobile phone and put the memo thing on and just record yourself saying stuff, get it out. Yeah, Keeping yeah. it in there and stewing about it doesn't help at all. No. That's, um, yeah, that's a really good tool and technique. So that became one way you, you wrote. You wrote whatever your doubts were. You wrote newsletters to your family. So it became yes. one tool, but you also drew on a lot of other tools. You share them, many of them in part two of your book, um, other tools that you knew could help you be healthy and have the best energy that you could have to, to continue this fight. Share some of those other tools that you drew on to help you get through this. Ah, uh, nutrition. Mm. We, we really are what we eat. Holy smokes. But you know, when you're on the marathon course, um, if you're not properly nourished, you're going to have issues, you know? Um, and uh, so I realized that right away that my, my nutrition is going to be the most important thing that I can do that's within my power. Let the doctors do the drugs and the, the treatment and the schedule and, and, you know, let me do what I was in control of. I was in control of what great wig I was going to wear that day <laughs> and, and what, what food I was going to fuel this body with that was going to um, keep me um, properly like filled up with all the vitamins I need because going through chemo, a lot of vitamins, when it's aggressive chemo, you can't take any of these vitamins. Mm -hmm. So I had to strip down all the vitamins. So I felt naked because I'm used to taking vitamins. Um, so I had to depend on the food that I ate to get the nourishment that I needed and the vitamins that I needed. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to create recipes and I learned very easily or very early that sugar, that was the first thing I cut out. When they called back with, um, this is it, you know, you have cancer. Um, that was it. Sugar was no longer in my life and hasn't been ever since. And I don't mean eating cookies and candies. I mean, sugar is in everything. It's in, it's in breadcrumbs, Italian breadcrumbs. Why? You know, it's in, it's in everything. So you have to read labels. Even if it says zero sugar, it still could have up to 0 0.5 grams of sugar in there. I think that's what it is. Don't, don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it, you have to really read the ingredients of, of items and rid your body of this toxin that I think is really dangerous, you know? And um, I do write about that in the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, just what I've learned about sugar and what a difference it made to my body, um, not only to feel like I'm not feeding cancer, especially when I was going through treatment, I didn't wanna feed any cancer with, with some possible fuel like sugar, um, but the inflammation it causes in joints. And as a, you know, being a professional athlete, and my body's been through a lot, mm -hmm. the car accident and everything, you know, a lot of healing has happened in these, these bones. Um, I don't need the extra, extra inflammation from sugar and some other foods as well. So processed foods are out, sugar's out, alcohol is out. 
this is one clean running machine. <laughs> and that's what I plan. I plan to keep it like that because if this is how I can take control of how I can stay cancer free, then, then I'm going to do it. It's such an important point. I was actually just listening to a podcast this morning with um, a couple of women I know who run a program called Clean Cut. And on that podcast, they were talking about oh. sugar and how we, you and I, Chrissy, and, and them as well, were brought up in a generation where everything was sugar. I mean, we used to eat Ho-Hos and Twinkies and, yeah. you know, <laughs> Hostess cupcakes and, you know, all this garbagey yeah. food. And now look at the number of cancers that our generation is dealing yes. with and compared to other generations before us. Um, and a lot of it can be linked directly to nutrition and sugar. So I'm glad yes, that you brought can. that up. Yeah. Um, so, so I just share in the book things that worked for me and the recipes I created because I like my desserts too. So I had to create some sugar-free things and um, fruits and vegetables and just great ways to, to prepare them. And just always think about, well, what is this gonna do for my body now? And I honestly do think, and I learned that way back in the years of being a Weight Watcher leader, most people really are more concerned about the fuel they put in their car than in their bodies. But I think now people are more aware because the evidence is there. It's obvious and the evidence is there. Um, and for that reason, you're seeing more and more and more healthy options in the grocery store that are sugar-free and no added sugar. And like, it's really great now. You can get ice cream like that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll vouch. I actually made some of your recipes, including the banana muffins. I made them Thank as muffins. Um, yes. Delicious. And, and completely agree that you do not need sugar to make food delicious for sure. Yes. So in addition to nutrition, um, obviously exercise was another tool that you leaned on. How much exercise were you able to do when you were actually going through the treatments? Some days, not much. <laughs> um, but I, what I did was I put the yoga mat right beside the bed and had it down on the floor. And I put whatever tools I had. I wasn't allowed to do upper body workouts often because of the, the right side of my, my breast. Um, I had a Pilates ring there. I had bands, you know, stretchy tubing, whatever. Um, so whenever I got up, like during those days when I was deep in the tunnel and I had to make myself get to the bathroom and come back, I might get down on the, the, the yoga mat and I might do some bridges. I might do some leg circles. I might do some roll-ups. I would do something. And if I was able to do five, 10 minutes of something, that was great. If I was able to do one move, great, done. <laughs> Back to bed. I, I just did what I could, when I could, where I could, for how long I could. And that is my philosophy for exercise for anybody. Do what you can, where you can, when you can, for how long you can. It all adds up in the end. You know, it really does. So if you only go out the door for five minutes in one direction and then turn around and come home, hey, you did 10 minutes. Woo! You know, it adds up when you go through the whole week with everything else you've done. So sometimes I was able and energized enough to get on my bike. Um, I love walking with um, Nordic walking, balanced walking poles. And I am a, a coach with those. And I would go out through the neighborhood, just short walks. So I just did what I could whenever I could. And if I couldn't do it, I really tried to not beat myself up about it. Mm -hmm. um, I had, I knew that I would get back to where I was before cancer and um, 
I did. I got back my strength now without all the added fat that I had layered on there before. <laughs> Amazing yeah. how good that feels too. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier just briefly, but I, I do think it was another tool that you used um, was you, you mentioned the wigs, but another tool oh. that you used, I think is the recognition that when you look good, it does help you feel good. And I think when you're going through any kind of illness, any kind, but especially through cancer and chemo and, and all of that treatment, you don't look very good, right? You know that you're thinking you don't look right. very good. So yes. you did a lot yes. of things to help you look better because you knew that was going to establish your mindset. Share some of the stories about your wigs because in the book, you you actually have pictures of them and it's so great. Um, but, but obviously you don't think you're going to look good because you're going to lose your hair. And what does that do um, to your psyche and all that? So how did you use your knowledge of what it means to be beautiful and used your wigs and things like that to help you feel better as well? Right. Well, I know you say my knowledge because I do have experience as a professional makeup artist and I did makeup and hair for TV for many years and um, done a couple album covers and music videos. Um, I love that. You know, I grew up in the beauty salon. Mom was a hairdresser and she just always told me, you've got to get this training because you're going to be able to do it anywhere. And I did. Um, so the, the whole part about losing my hair. And I remember when we found out all the different drugs that were going to be in my cocktail that caused hair loss. And I didn't have much hair. I have very baby fine hair. I thought, oh, it's not going to take much to gone. Right. And um and then I thought, you know what? That's not bad. My sister said, Chrissy, just you're going to get a whole new head of hair. And she said, just think with these wigs, you can have perfect hair. Whatever you want, you can have. I thought that is a good way to look at it. So <laughs> I picked the first wig that I got, I swear, is this really big hair, right? Yeah. And um, thick, like I've never had. Yeah. So a big head of hair. <laughs> And it was, it was, um, it took a while. It took probably four or five months after treatment began before the um, eyelashes all came out and the eyebrows, they hung on for quite a while, but they were sparse and there were few and far between. So I would just fill it in with makeup and um, use powders and um, make sure my skin didn't look pale. And the biggest part about the cancer treatment that still kind of hangs on, and I don't know if it's my imagination hanging on or what, but the dark circles under the eyes, mm. that, that part was really, really annoying. <laughs> so mm. really good cover up. You need very good cover up to brighten that all up. Because to me, when I went out, I was totally decked out to go to the grocery store, to the drugstore, wherever it was on my good days, which were about 10 to 14 days in between treatments. I had some good days to go and do those things. I made sure I looked really good because it was important to me to not look sick. Mm -hmm. And it was important to me that I was the one to choose who knew I had cancer when I went out with strangers, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I didn't want to be like, oh, she must have cancer, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, look at that poor woman, she must have cancer. Because if I didn't do my hair and makeup and put a wig on and that, I think I would look like that. And I just didn't want to be like that. I don't know. And I may be criticized for saying that. I don't know. That's just me. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to look sick. And that's exactly what my mother said. She didn't want to look sick. 
when she was diagnosed. So I think that's a big part of it as well. It stuck with me, you know? So I did everything I could with makeup and great wigs. I love my pink wig. I still wear my pink wig. And you know, why not wear these other wigs? Yes, I think there's six different wigs and pictures in the book. It looks like I have great hair all the time. That's because most of them are wigs besides the way it grew in at the end, which I am having fun with now. This wiry, sort of curly, um, Phyllis Diller-ish <laughs> <laughs> hair that grew in. It really is. It's like, wow, you know, and um, yeah, never. My mother said my hair was poker straight because my hair was just totally straight. Now it's not really like that anymore. So it's kind of fun. So I'm having fun with it while it's like this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I actually, for some of the listeners may not even know who Phyllis Diller is. So I love that you brought her up for those of us who do know. Um, and I have never thought of you as, as I never put those two together, but I can see it. You have beautiful hair now, but it's definitely not straight. And, you know, it's not pink either. So <laughs> um, I do think that there is a, you know, it kind of goes back to mindset, though, what you're talking about, about uh, not wanting to look sick. You know, it's, it's partly your internal, just knowing when you, when you walk out a certain way, you, you put you feel different, but also, um, perhaps yeah, almost even like pulling your shoulders back, walking tall, nice yeah. postural alignment, boy, everybody looks 10 years younger. Right. And when you go out looking sick, it makes you feel sick. And, you know, when you're, when you're trying to control the controllables, which you did so well, and one of the things that you could control, you could control how you looked when you walked out the door and, and, and ultimately how that made you feel. So yes, that, I appreciate that was that. in my control. That was in my control. What wig I wore was in my control. Yes. yes. How I looked and how I, how I presented myself was definitely in my control. And I, I let the, my oncology team that I trusted with my life um, take everything else into control that they had to. And I believe them and I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. So as a team, we all worked well together. You know, I'm so glad you just said that because it, it, the team is another thing that you had control over. You had, and it was important to you. Um, and I think for anybody that's going through any challenge in their life, the team that we put around ourselves is big element of our recovery and our and our ability to get through it to the best of our ability. So you had a team of doctors that you trusted for sure, but you also had a, a large team of people around you in your family and your friends. You talk about in the book so many times when your friends right. and your family came around you and lifted you up share some of those stories and some of those memories of of people in your life coming with you on this journey to help you at the moments when you really needed it um, to be lifted up and how important is that for somebody who's going through anything that might be challenging in life surrounding themselves with people to lift them up yeah you know i think i think when when um other um cancer survivors, cancer patients, cancer thrivers that, that have gone through what I've gone through will probably agree with me that relationships look a little bit different when you're diagnosed with cancer. Some relationships you thought were amazing and would be there forever suddenly aren't anymore. <laughs> and you don't really understand what happened or why. But um, 
and, and then some other relationships, you, you just, there's unconditional love and support from every direction with so many people. So it was important to me to right away um, take note of, okay, who is lifting me up here? And I have to focus on those and I have to let go and not worry about the people that didn't send a text or a hello or, or, or call Joe and say, hey, I heard Chrissy is dealing with cancer. Like they found out, I knew they knew. And so, but like, you never heard anything. And, and it's weird, but you, you think about, I think about all that anyway. Mm-hmm. I think about all those and, and kind of get it, especially when you're laying there in the tunnel staring at the tree out the window you know like these things come into your head so that's I, I would get rid of all of those by writing all that out to get it out of my system and and then focus on the people that lifted me up and those people showed up at my infusions and we I swear we had parties in my infusions center <laughs> with all the chairs in there laughing and um, so I, I had a, a list I said these are the dates of my infusion um, so everybody sign up. Who wants to come with me? <laughs> I made it like a real social event. This is a party, you know, and I mean, not everybody wants to go watch what a cancer patient goes through, but you know what? I thought it might be interesting for some. And I had full seats at every show. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one thing. And I even did that with my radiation, although you couldn't come into the radiation room. That is like, you know, beam me up, Scotty. That is like very strange, but, and it's very short too, but I always had somebody in the chair waiting for me when I came out from, you know, from burn baby burn. And um, so that was one way. And, and, and also those friends and and family, they, they got on planes and flew thousands of miles to be here with me and um, dropped everything in their lives. Unconditional love. You, you just can't, So that's what you focused on and you make it work too with space. Yeah. <laughs> Aerobed city was always happening around here. <laughs> and then the happy hours, um, because they were mostly outside. I felt safe in the fresh air from germs and bacteria, which we can all relate to now. Right. Mm-hmm. So we would hit our local winery outside and everybody would enjoy appetizers and happy hour. And I, w- I would see friends, we'd get pictures, you know, cause of course I was always sporting a different wig. So I had to get, a lot of pictures with like different wigs on while I had a chance and it was fun it was just fun to laugh a lot to laugh a lot and get out there and I I definitely had to push myself sometimes but I thought it was important for me to do this just for that nurturing part of the journey there there is the the movement part of the journey which is you know getting my own personal exercise in and there's the the nourishment part of the journey, which was also on my job description, you know, the drugs and treatment that was on my medical team's job description. My job description was move. And every time when I would leave from my infusion, they'd say, make sure you exercise. You know, they'd sing that out to me and I'd go, oh yeah, you know, and then I'd go home and flop on the bed and think about it for a few days. Um, <laughs> and then, and then there's the, the um, move that, so there's the move part, the, the nourishment and the fuel part. And that nurture part. And to me, um, part of the nurture part was getting friends together and just be with them. And I wasn't always myself because, well, of course I wasn't. Look what I was going through. And I would question too, like, am 
am I going to make this? Sometimes I would question it. You know, it, it's hard not to, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so all of that was really important. Yes, relationships look different. I I am taken by the fact that as important as it is, you know, we're we're as human beings, we need that kind of nurture. You know, we we thrive when we're loved and connected, right? Yes, but it's yes. also hard to ask for that. It's really hard for people to ask for help, you know, to have a sign up list of who wants to come with me. Um, that's not always easy for people. How, how would you advise somebody who maybe struggles with accepting help or even asking for help to begin with? What would you tell them to help them make that a little easier. Hmm. Yeah, fortunately, there are always people in our lives that don't ask you what you need. They just somehow show up <laughs> with what you need. And on my journey, there were many people like that, that I was really, really, really fortunate to have in my life that just always knew. Um, when it's some you have to take a look. I'm, I'm telling you, things look a lot different when you're diagnosed with cancer, you know, and you're taking a look at that long road ahead of journey that lasted a whole year, a whole year I was in treatment with getting plugged into my chest and, and drugs put in there. Um, you, you start to look at things a little differently. And if you need something, you're, you're going to ask. I think, I think you're going to ask. I don't think anybody would need advice on how to do that. Just take a look at what do you need? I needed somebody to be with me at those infusions. And I knew that right away. I wanted, comp I wanted people to see what it was like. I wanted people to, I'd like to show people. I'm a big show and tell person. But <laughs> 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 I don't think it's a, I don't know. You could call me a show off if you want. Um, I've never been a show off and my mom raised us to say, never show off, you know, <laughs> um, but I, I do love show and tell. I've always been show and tell, you know, and, and I always want to teach people and, and, you know, just like when I did that first marathon, it's, it's, I came back and I had to run my own team after that, which I did, you know, it's like, I just really want to teach and I want to show and tell. <laughs> Well, and it's, it's really the essence of this book too, isn't it? You know, to show people that it can be done and to tell them how to do it, to show and tell and to teach. And that is what, to me, what, what your book will do. And I'm, thank you. And it's not always like, you know, I laugh a lot because that's how I manage to get through things. Um, and the emotions really do come out in a lot of the music too, because we were, um, Oh, so much of the emotion. When I talked about the emotions of layering of emotions with layering of harmonies, mm -hmm. that's exactly what happens when you get that emotion out to, to, it's all funny, and but get it out into a song, write it out onto a paper, like you said, to either tear up, burn up, or file, you know, just getting it all out in some way makes a massive difference. Yeah. For sure, for sure. I also want to loop back because another thing that people often say, or I've heard people struggle with when they find somebody, find out somebody they know is sick or has cancer or is battling something, maybe they want to help, but they don't even know how to help. 
And so, you know, you had the experience where, you know, people didn't text or didn't come by and, and I think sometimes it's just people are kind of caught in their own bubbles, right? Yeah. <laughs> Doing their own thing. Yeah. But That's I think right. sometimes That's it's right. because they don't know what to do and they don't know how to help. Exactly. What, what's the best advice now that you've been on the other side of it? What worked yeah. best for yeah. you? Um, if somebody wanted to help somebody else, what would you suggest that, that they do? Yeah. Um, the, the, I understand, and it's hard to know what to say when you find out somebody has been diagnosed with cancer, and our human nature is to want to help and want to say something to make them feel better. So if your aunt had cancer, breast cancer, she had breast cancer too, and she's doing great now, you'll be fine. That's coming from a place of love and support from that person that says that to you when they find out you have cancer. For me, um, that I can only speak for myself, a lot of times when somebody came back with that to me when they found out I had cancer, I felt dismissed. When meanwhile, well, that's great. I'm really happy your aunt. And I would say that like, I'm, oh, that's great. I'm really happy to hear that. Meanwhile, you're like kind of like shriveling inside thinking, wow, you know, I'm going through cancer right now. I don't really feel good right now. <laughs> I have a journey ahead of me right now, mm. you know? So my recommendation or my suggestion, what would have been better when they find out I have cancer, what I would have felt better, and then tell me about your aunt or your sister, but ask me how I am. Ask me how I'm feeling. How are you, Joe, my husband? Those things. I'm getting emotional talking about that because I think that's the part that you need from others is just for them to say oh how do you feel I'm here for you instead of finding out that you're going to be okay because they don't know your doctor does <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that is something that always hit me funny because the first thing somebody would ask you when they find out you had cancer would be, what stage is it? Right away, like before you even finished saying something, it'd be like they want it because they want to judge you. you they want to put judged. you into a container or whatever that yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, stage two. Oh, you'll be fine. You know, what, what, what if I said stage three? What if I said stage four? But then what would you have said? You know, so it was always the first question was, Oh, you have cancer. What stage are you at? Because then they would judge you. Oh, well, then you can't be that bad. They don't know how I am. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I look good. I've got the wig. I got makeup. I didn't look sick. And that was the part. And, and, and in the book, I do reference that at one point when my Uncle Wayne was visiting. And we went to the stone house. It was on my, I was in, in isolation for my 10 days. I would stay in isolation for 10 days to stay healthy. And it was the 10th day and we went out to the stone house outside and my uncle just kept looking at me saying, you look too good. I feel like we should have wheeled you in here on a gurney. <laughs> you know, because I just really made a point of looking the best I could. <laughs> well, again, so back to that mindset and, 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 and whatever we're putting out there is what's being received as well. So when you're putting out there that you look good and you feel good, then that's what people are seeing yes. too. And that, yes. that's, 
you know, ultimately that's, uh, you know, a, a nice tool to use, yeah. but, but what so it, it doesn't do, to, yeah, which is the part that you're talking about is it doesn't validate you where you are. So what, what I hear you saying is that instead of trying to make connections or trying to gloss it over, make them feel better, it's, it's more effective to validate them where they are, to say to somebody, tell me more about that. Where are you in this? Yeah, yeah. I, I understand this is an overwhelming thing. Share with me what you're feeling. That's awesome. It, 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 that's, that was rare that that happened, um, unless it was somebody that had gone through it. Um, mm. So this, this was something that I did share in my family newsletters and that they thanked me. They thanked me about that, that, that now they know what, you know, because, because dismissive, I think it felt very dismissive. And, and here, you know, when you're going through a year of treatment or whatever your um, journey of treatment entails, you're on a journey and you're on a mission and you're like, boy, this is, I'm getting this. I am nailing this. I am doing everything I can. And then to be dismissed like that, oh, you'll be fine. You know, it, it, yeah. that, I think that's why and I understood, and it's not anybody's fault with what comes, comes from them when they find out you have cancer, because we really, it's hard to know what to say to somebody. You don't know what to say. And yeah, <laughs> so I think something. it's really good advice though. I think that is something that's a, a great takeaway for anyone listening in is to, to not be so quick to dismiss or to move past the subject just because it's uncomfortable. Let the person have a moment to share where they are and open that up in any way that you are yeah. able to. And, and that can go a long way. Sounds and ask like how, how the, and ask how they are instead of what stage are you? Yeah. And yeah. then compare it, you know? Yeah. As we're talking about the support system that you had and the, the family and friends that were surrounding you, there are two very important people that we haven't talked about yet, <laughs> people I'm going to use in quotes, because one of them <laughs> is Stewie. Ah, uh, Stewie. <laughs> I couldn't get through the podcast without talking about Stewie, because I've been, you know, on the calls that we've had when we've been working on the book, Stewie is always very close by your shoulder. And so I've, <laughs> yep. I haven't met him officially, but I certainly have heard him <laughs> in the background. Yes. <laughs> um, and he was a, a big part of your, as you would go into the tunnel, he was there beside you. So tell us about Stewie and share a little bit about him because he is an important oh. quote unquote person in your life. It's funny. Yes. There is my husband, Joe. And then there is our African gray parrot, Stewie. And Stewie's 11 years old now, and he is unbelievably smart. You know, the African gray parrot has the mentality of a two to a three-year-old child. Like they're really smart, <laughs> little scary smart sometimes. Um, when I was in treatment, I mean, he, it was obvious, he knew something wasn't right. And we would his big, big cage, we can wheel it around the house. So we would wheel it into the bedroom on those days when I just didn't want to get out of my, um, what I called camp recovery. <laughs> and, um, and we would be in there um, and he would be on his, his door of his cage and leaning forward with his neck stretched out and leaning forward, just staring at me for hours, four hours. 
And then I would move and I'd say, hey, Stu. And he'd go do little kisses and, and what's going on? What's going on? What are you doing? Like, it's just hilarious. You know, he was such a great buddy to have by my side through all of that. And we would watch The Office <laughs> all day long. <laughs> and, and I would laugh and he would laugh. So now he laughs exactly like me because we spent hours with this. And, um, and he, he now whistles the theme song to The Office too. <laughs> Which is so funny. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he was, it was really great to have a pet. I think it's, it's, and I thought Joe and I were talking about that a few days ago. And I said, you know, if we didn't have him, I think I would probably would have asked to have a pet when I went into treatment, like get me a cat or a little dog, something, you know, just something that's going to just be with you throughout some it. Company, some company yeah, and just, yeah. they don't ask anything of you, you know, they just are there. Exactly. He, he was very um, sensitive, very sensitive to what was going on. Interesting. And the other one um, you brought up there, and I do want to make sure that we spend a little time talking about Joe, because whenever anybody goes through cancer, it is not just them, it is their family. And in your case, Joe was right there by your side. He actually wrote the foreword to the book, Yes, which yes. was lovely. And you know, share a little bit about what this was like for him. This was a year for you, but, but what was it like for him? And, you know, how did, how did he play a role in, in your whole recovery? Oh, it was, it was rough for him. He's not as outspoken about things as I am. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't share much. And I just, found that it really it shut him down quite a bit too I think there's a lot of fears now he talks about it more openly and it really did take a long time um everybody's affected it's a family diagnosis it's everybody in the family is diagnosed when one person is diagnosed and everybody deals with with it in different ways and for Joe he ended up um having such high stress with it yeah, that um, you will read about in the book that he ended up having a, a medical emergency situation because of the high stress that he was going through um, because of what I was going through. So the tables were reversed and all of a sudden while I was in treatment, I was making sure he was taken care of. Um, yeah, I think everybody is very involved in the diagnosis. Um, my sister who lives on the other side of the world in Hong Kong um, whenever anything would be going on and I would be having a rough time in treatment, uh, she would be going for acupuncture and be denied because her blood pressure was too high. And that was all a result of what she was feeling, what I was going through. So even distance, I mean, every, everybody is affected. And <clears throat> I think it's good for everybody to just check in. And we did that weekly or biweekly with Skype or Zoom family calls. It was actually Skype family calls. We called the Global Culture Club. And everybody from all over the world, London, England, Ontario, Canada, Hong Kong, California, all of us were in our little window like the Brady Bunch, like now everybody is familiar with since our um, current situation on the world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we would catch up like that. And I always made sure I looked good and I had makeup on. And some days I was a real bag of bones because I was in the middle of the tunnel and some days I was okay, but either way, 
everybody was there for me. Um, Sheesh, there's so much to talk about. There's so much we could go on and on, but I want to bring this to a close uh, by actually reading a little bit about the Global Culture Club, actually, Um, but but really the, the final bit of part one of your book. And it says, there they were, the Global Culture Club. It was just like I visualized when I was in radiation and now my movie was coming to life. The party boat pulled up to the dock and I rushed in for hugs. No words were needed for this emotional and wonderful reunion, just the embrace. Our luggage was loaded onto the boat and we left the dock. I stood at the front of the boat, closed my eyes and felt it for real. The sun and the wind on my face as the pontoon rounded the peninsula to the shore was just like I had imagined it so many times before. And there it was right in front of me, my last Point two was finally done. I had reached my finish line. This was real and not my imagination anymore. I had envisioned this moment and now it was right in front of me. It was the best marathon medal I have ever earned. My family at the lake house. Breathe, exhale. (laughs) Now I'm crying. I can't read the end of my own book without crying. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, of course, I'm laughing, too, right? Because that's what we do. Yeah. 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 Oh, boy. I can't. You remember that moment. You remember that moment. Completely. And I envisioned it so many times. And there were times during. I hope I get to see it again. You know, you just it's it's strange what happens to you. It's quite a journey, I'll tell you. And it's it was a, quite a journey. Yeah, the biggest marathon I've ever completed in my life. And it took all of those things. It took making a plan. It took following my steps. It took making sure I was properly nourished. I was, I had my everything in check. And I had my list, check it off and keep going. And if it gets rough, just shut up and keep going. <laughs> The only way to go is forward, right? The only way to go is forward and you keep putting another foot in front of the other. That's right. I think George Lucas said that, said that didn't he? Yeah. Put one foot I don't know, but it could be. <laughs> um, yeah. So you made it. You made it to the finish line. You, yes, you, I did. The interruption is no longer. Your life is back no. on track. A new chapter has yes. begun. Yeah. What's next for you, Chrissy? What are you What are you working on now? What do you see coming up for you as you continue to live your most healthy, purposeful, fulfilling life? Yes. Well, I do look at it um, as today, and and you know, today is my day to be present and uh, always look for the most positive things of today. There's always going to be horrible things that we can focus on throughout the day. And that, that is something that I carried through my treatment. As ugly as it got sometimes, I had to always just find at least one positive through the day. Hey, my infusion center is right across the road and hang on to that one positive thing. Because when I focused on that one positive thing, I got more of it. So today, that's what I do every day as I find, and if it's kind of a crummy day and they're in there somewhere always, you know, I always think, okay, where's the, po- there's something positive to hang on to. I'll hang on to that to make that grow into positive and keep writing and keep recording 
and our CD. Um, Joe and I have worked very hard on the CD that was interrupted. We started this CD called Another Interruption. We started it before um, that my diagnosis, years before, because when you're trying to work and, and just keep going, it, you can't just stop and record an album. So it's been a, a, a process to, to get this recorded. And then we had the break during cancer. During treatment, I managed to do some vocals and writing. And in the end now, we have a CD that is ready with eight songs um, and some that are really reflective of my journey. So that is what I'm going to do more of. We've recorded a video in the summer to celebrate my three-year survivorship. Um, and uh, because you, you count your survivor years from the day you're diagnosed. So mm -hmm. I was diagnosed on July, 2017. So in July of 2020, I was a three-year survivor. I didn't know that's how it counted. So uh, to celebrate that, we launched a video when the world shut down. And it's a song about what we're all going through now, which was so similar when I went through my treatment, wearing gloves, wearing masks, trying to stay bacteria free, checking my temperature all the time, all those things. <laughs> um, so we're going to do more, more of that, more videos. Um, of course, I am excited about writing another book and another one and another one. And I think my next um, book will, will be more in the line of Chrissy's Cancer-Free Life, which is more of an extension of part two of the book, another interruption, um, and, and have more of my recipes that I've created because I love to cook. I think it's, it's a great, a great expression. And um, so, and making up recipes has always been something I've loved to do. And so more recording and more writing and, and more teaching and, and more learning. And I swear, the more I learn, the, the more I, I know I don't know. <laughs> and I, so I just, in the book, I referenced that I was during the, the, the writing of that section, I was taking a course on, um, uh, sports, uh, plant-based, <clears throat> excuse me, plant-based sports nutrition. And I did finish that course and I did get my certificate. So um, always learning, learning, learning. Yeah, that's what's in my future is another healthy day. <laughs> I love that. Well, all the things that you love, that you are really, truly passionate about. And um, I, I look forward to the CD coming out and I look forward to the next books and, and anything Thank that those you. bring with you um, along Thank the way. You. Before we I, finish. I, I, I talked ahead. too much, I'm sure. You know, this is my first author interview ever. Congratulations. And you did it beautifully. And there will be many more to come, I have no doubt. So I'm glad this was the first, but it will not be the last. Thank you so much. Before we finish, I always like to have my guests share a little bit about the idea of it just takes one because I'm just always fascinated by the concept of what that one tiny little thing can do and how much it can impact and change your life. So I'm just curious, Chrissy, what does It Just Takes One mean to you? It just takes one day to turn it all around. Hmm. Yeah, it just takes one day to turn it all around. It just, it could mean so many things. It just takes one exercise to make a difference to your day, one. It just takes one, one food to make a difference to how you feel, yeah. It just takes one day to turn it all around. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. that. Chrissy, if people would like to learn more about you, they'd like to get the CD or they'd like to get the book or they want to find out what you're doing next, where can they find you? What's the best way for them to connect with you? I have a website, www.chrissylomax.com. I have a Facebook page as well. Um, And I have an email, chrissy at chrissylomax.com. Fantastic. And the book will be available in ebook on Kindle as well as paperback through Amazon. So uh, yes, that will launch audio version as well. We will get that done as well. Good. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, absolutely. The audio will be great as well. So the, the book will launch in the first week of February coming up here and uh, will be available after that. Yes, it's coming. It's launching on February 2nd in memory of my mother. And her day is February 5th when she left us. So we're going to be honoring her on the launch of this book. Wonderful. Chrissy, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today. And and this whole process of book writing and getting to know you has just been just a really great experience for me. So thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being an amazing, an amazing publisher to work with. Thank you so much. We will talk with you very soon. Can't wait. Like I said, Chrissy Lomax is a great light, a bright, intelligent woman with a heart of gold and laughter that follows. I hope you enjoyed the conversation we had. I want to just pull out a couple of things that I think were noteworthy. In particular, I want to just reiterate the tools that Chrissy shared that helped her overcome not just the car accident that she experienced, but also her bout with breast cancer. One of the things that I think was a huge takeaway was the idea of mindset. I always like to say, we need to stand guard at the door to our mind, a quote from Tony Robbins. We need to stand guard at the door to our mind, meaning we are in control of our thoughts and the way that we perceive any situation, the way we think about it. Chrissy gave several examples of how she has trained herself to have the ability to overcome negative thinking and to have more resilient thinking, more optimistic thinking. And I think a large part of that is that she does practice standing guard at the door to her mind. Number two, another takeaway from the conversation was the idea that in order to feel good, it helps to look good. And that isn't just a superficial concept. That isn't just about having the perfect eyebrows or the right haircut. It is about being your best self and putting your best self forward, no matter what you're experiencing in life. Our physical our physical presence actually changes our internal presence and vice versa. And so taking time to look good, to take care of yourself, to go that little extra to make yourself feel better and present yourself differently in the world is great for mind, body, and spirit. Number three, surround yourself with a team of people who support you. As you read Chrissy's book, you will find that she cultivated an amazing team between her friends and her family, her doctors, 
everybody was rowing the boat with her, helping her overcome this major challenge in her life. And it's so true. We, we all need to remember that. The people we surround ourselves with help to boost us, whether we're in a good place or a bad place in our life. That team is so important. And finally, in part two of her book, she actually outlines specifically these three concepts, fuel, move, and nurture. Eat right, exercise, move, keep your body moving, and then take good care of yourself. Self-care allows you to care better for others. When we feel good, it helps us reach out and give more to other people. And taking care of ourselves includes watching what we eat, continuing to move, and continuing to nurture ourselves so that we can be our best. So many more nuggets in there. I hope you had some great takeaways from this conversation. And I invite you to follow Chrissy. She did release a CD of her music. You're hearing some of it, a song that she wrote and sings uh, in this podcast as we mix it together. But she has some great music out there and I certainly encourage you to, to look her up. Um, the CD has the same name, the one that she just released called Another Interruption, but she does have other music out there too. And in the meantime, I also encourage you to remember that it just takes one and today might be your day to be that one. I most needed your hand With my spirit tone Couldn't believe you were so Intertwined with yourself Not to notice me Calling your name I'm very fragile Right now I'm very tangled up In my own blues I'm very fragile I don't have much left I can lose Can you tell me how you Can keep swimming in water Infested with creatures that tear At your armor and never forget To breathe in all your positive energies Floating on top of the In what I choose, I'm very fragile right now. I find it hard to decide what to use. I don't think you don't think I'm as sensitive as I am scared to go on with the fear. I'm not sure I can, nobody thinks I could ever be. Shy or embarrassed.